0: The Secret Garden of the Soul, Part 6, Concerning the Thirty-Two Paths of Wisdom In thirty-two mysterious paths of wisdom did Yah, the Jehovah of hosts, the God of Israel, the living Elohim, the King of Ages, the merciful and gracious God, the Exalted One, the Dweller in Eternity, Most High and Holy, engrave His name by the three seraphim, Numbers, letters and sounds. These words are the opening lines of the Sefer Yetzirah concerning which a great deal of marvellous speculation has been written and no doubt will continue to be written in the future. Much of the speculation is of a very learned nature and requires prolonged study before it begins to make sense. This does not mean that Kabbalah is only for scholars far from it but there are a number of factors that do need to be taken into account by anyone seeking a greater understanding of this subject. One of these factors is that the language of the Kabbalah is a language of metaphor and allegory, employed to conceal a sacred teaching from the curious, but designed to be understood by those who have been given the keys. Consider the first line, which states, and I quote, in 32 mysterious paths of wisdom." End quote. These words are pregnant with meaning. For example, in Hebrew the number 32 lamed-beth which is also the Hebrew word for the heart. Now there is a teaching concerning the heart that has been fundamental to the tradition since time immemorial. It is a teaching concerned with concentrating the mind in the region of the heart as opposed to the brain and the physical senses. The heart is in fact the inner temple, the entrance to which is only revealed to those whose conscience has been purified. Thus, to enter the inner temple, one must first learn the method of purifying the conscience, and there is a method. Those who are fortunate enough to discover this method may then enter the temple of the heart. However, The method is not easy to implement and requires a great deal of patience and fortitude. In part, this is because consciousness is essentially modal, and the mode in which we normally experience life is reactive and transient, ever dependent upon data from the senses and body chemistry to define reality, and thus incapable of grasping the profound realities of the Sephirotic world which is the constant, unchanging substrate of our existence. Simply put, this means we must withdraw the mind from the material world of the senses and concentrate it within the heart. This is a very particular discipline involving a slow and systematic withdrawal from the external senses and from the attachments we have formed to the things of the senses. It's not simply a question of technique or words of power, but requires a love of the divine that is greater and more persistent than our love of the world or self. Different schools have their own methods designed to bring this about, which when successfully applied result in the mind being established in the heart and functioning in an altogether more exalted mode of consciousness. Wisdom is the title of the second safira, Chokmah. It describes a state of unity that transcends duality, and that is, strictly speaking, beyond the grasp of human consciousness. Nevertheless, its influence is experienced in the heart as a state of being in which the soul is embraced in the peace and love of God. It is in this blessed state that the soul is able to engage with the Sephirotic world, and in which the mysteries of creation are revealed according to 32 mysterious or secret paths. These paths are described in the Sefer Yetzirah and are represented therein by the ten Sephiroth and the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The Sephiroth, which constitute the body of the divine Adam Kadmon, are described as the first ten paths. The 22 letters, which convention describes as the interconnecting paths between the Sephiroth constitute a sophisticated metaphysical language that describes the chemistry of creation. As letters, they may be contemplated in three different ways, as the written word, as the spoken word and as number. In all three ways, there are mysteries and secrets. They are also attributed according to an ancient cosmology. To three primary elements, seven planets, and twelve signs of the zodiac, upon which an archaic and some would say universal mystical teaching depends. According to the Sefer Yetzirah, the letters are derived from the Sephiroth. Thus, and I quote: "The ineffable Sephiroth give forth the ten numbers. First, the spirit of the God of the Living. Second, from the spirit he produced hair." And formed it into 22 sounds, the letters. The formation of each letter is based upon a square. The top represents the heavens, the right hand side is a descending line from heaven. The bottom represents the earth, and the left hand side is an ascending line suggesting a movement into and out of manifestation. Letters and Numbers are some of the more important tools used in Kabbalistic meditations and philosophical thought. They enable Kabbalists to engage in a profound exploration of the Scriptures, to penetrate beyond the literal meaning of the sacred texts, bringing them to the inner sanctuary of the soul, where the Spirit of God descends and assists them in the work of spiritual regeneration and prepares them for the work of assisting their fellows. They are very ancient, indeed their use was well understood by the priests and scribes of ancient Egypt, Babylon and Persia, and were later to become widespread in the Hellenistic world. One such tool is gematria, which is a method of scriptural exegesis through which the numerical value of words or phrases is calculated and used to establish a more esoteric understanding of the text. The comparison with other words and phrases of a similar value is an added dimension to this method and has been used extensively by Kabbalists from the earliest times. The first recorded use of gematria occurs in an inscription of the Babylonian king Sargon II which states that he built the wall of Khosabad 16,283 cubits long to correspond with the numerical value of his name. Its use was widespread in the Hellenistic world, and it is known to have been used by the teachers of the Mishnah in Palestine during the 2nd century, and by medieval Kabbalists from the 12th century onwards. One example from Genesis 18.2 is as follows, and I quote, Lo, three men stood by him, end quote. It is deduced that these three men were in fact the angels Michael, Gabriel and Raphael, because the numerical value of and lo three men, and these are Michael, Gabriel and Raphael, are the same. Another tool is notaricon, which is a system of shorthand in which the letters of a word are seen as an abbreviation of a whole sentence, or conversely, where the initial letters of each word in a sentence are combined to form a word that could be used to throw light on the original sentence. The term is derived from the system used by a shorthand scribe or writer in the law courts of ancient Rome. These notaries, as they were called, were skilled at abbreviating sentences and frequently signified whole words by single letters. For example, the word agla, is composed of the first letters of Atar Gibor Leolam Adonai, and which means in English, Thou art mighty forever, my Lord. The word Amen is said to be composed from the initials of the Hebrew words Adonai Melach Niman, which means in English, the Lord and Faithful King. There are other variations of this method including joining the beginning and endings of words together, and or connecting two words in the same sentence to make one. These methods were central to the meditative techniques devised in the 13th century by Abraham Abu Lafia and were used extensively in his school and by those who succeeded him. He used the techniques for developing the powers of association through which the attention of the aspirant progresses in an undistracted stream of connected thought wherein may be revealed profound spiritual truths. His methods were further developed by his successes. Another tool is Tamura, which is a method of substituting letters according to specific rules. Sometimes the letters of a word or phrase are transposed. Thus aleph then becomes the letter Tau, and Beth becomes the letter Shin, and so on. There are 22 variations of this particular system. Alternatively, each letter of a word is replaced by another according to a given scheme, thereby forming a new word. There are countless permutations of this nature, few of which are concerned with the esoteric understanding of Scripture. One of the most common is known as Ayikabaka, or the Kabbalah of Nine Chambers. This is produced by intersecting two horizontal lines with two vertical lines, forming something like the board for noughts and crosses. The letters are arranged in each square according to their values in units, tens and hundreds. The salaf is one, yod equals ten and kof equals one hundred. Beth equals two, kaf equals twenty, resh equals two hundred. Many other systems based on Temura were developed during and after the late medieval period and are more suited to the occult and political machinations of 17th and 18th century Europe than in understanding the spiritual dimensions of Kabbalah. The disciplines discussed so far have little to do with magic. Undoubtedly, there are magical aspects to Kabbalah. But in the main, outside of the schools, These disciplines have been distorted through greed, ignorance and a lack of understanding. Generally speaking, the magical dynamics of practical Kabbalah are based upon the transformative nature and power of the sacred names of God and the hierarchy of angels that exist in the spiritual worlds. And it has long been recognised by Kabbalists that through engaging with these powerful agencies, it is possible to effect changes not only in the spiritual worlds, but in the physical world as well. However, it would be negligent of me if I did not point out that what is commonly associated with Kabbalah as magic has in fact little to do with Kabbalah or with its primary objectives, which are generally concerned with the regeneration of the soul rather than with wonderworking or astral tourism. The majority of true Kabbalists openly disavow many of the magical practices commonly associated with practical Kabbalah, as they are not only irrelevant to the regeneration of the soul, but they often embrace dangerous practices that inevitably disrupt the natural order of things and frequently forge unlawful connections between forces and entities that should be kept separate. Such activities are considered to be a rebellion against the will of God as established in the natural laws of creation. Much of what passes in the world today as magic is more an invention of recent times than of the ancient world. This also applies to Kabbalah. Many connections have been attributed to ancient Kabbalists and their schools in support of the credentials of questionable systems of magic and general occult practices. A great deal of these practices are concerned with different forms of psychism, the development of psychic faculties that enables entities, spiritual or otherwise, to use one's mind as a vehicle for various enterprises that may be deemed vital to the well-being of the individual or even for humanity. It should be noted that this field of endeavour is full of pitfalls and dangers. In the Book of Talismans, the authors state, and I quote, the Kabbalah, the source and inspiration of the numerous talismans, came into being very soon after the establishment of the Christian religion, when the Jewish rabbis developed a complete science of divine things, received, as the name implies, by direct revelation, according to which all created things, from the highest to the lowest, are ruled, through the ten principal names of God, acting first through the nine orders of the angelic hosts and the blessed souls and through them to the celestial fears, planets and mankind. Lower degrees of angels and celestial influences, known as intelligences, ruled each element, nation, language, animal and vegetable life, atmospheric conditions, emotions and aspirations. The early Christians had great faith and belief in the power of numbers, and their magical formulas were largely composed of letters, having numerical values, usually expressed in Hebrew. Sometimes Greek letters were used, which when combined with astrological formulas attracted the good influences of the angels and the intelligences ruling through planets, the houses of the zodiac, their triplicities and degrees. End quote. They were probably alluding to the Sefer Yetzirah, which from the earliest times Kabbalists have claimed was composed by the patriarch Abraham and passed on orally from generation to generation, being written down and then only in cryptic form at a much later date, probably in the time of the exile. However, today it is generally accepted it was put into a written format sometime in the late 2nd or early 3rd century AD. It is a short text that describes 32 paths of wisdom, 10 of which correspond to the sephiroth and 22 to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. For more than 1500 years, this enigmatic text has influenced leading figures in esoteric communities throughout the Western world. It describes an ancient cosmology, the essence of which is contained in the following extract. The 22 letters are allocated to the primary elements, the signs of the zodiac and the planets. Three of the letters are attributed to the primary elements of air, fire and water. Seven are attributed to the seven planets of the ancient cosmological arrangement. Finally, twelve are attributed to the twelve signs of the zodiac. Its influence upon esoteric circles cannot be overestimated, even today. And I quote the Lord of hosts, the living God, King of the universe, omnipotent, all kind and merciful, supreme and extolled, who is eternal, sublime and the most holy, ordained and created the universe in thirty-two mysterious paths of wisdom by three seraphim, namely Sephor, Sipper and Saphir, which are for him one and the same. They consist of a decade out of nothing and of 22 fundamental letters. He divided the 22 consonants into three divisions three mothers, fundamental letters or first elements, seven double, and twelve simple consonants. Concerning this, William Wynne Westcott writes, and I quote From this origin arose the system of designing talismans, written on parchment or engraved on brass or on gems, as each planet has a letter and a number, in regard to each a magical square of lesser squares. Thus, for Jupiter, four was the number and Daleth the letter, and the magic square of Jupiter had sixteen smaller squares within it. In each a number one to sixteen, and so each line added up to thirty-four, and the total of numbers was a hundred and thirty-six. Every talisman duly formed bore at least one god-name to sanctify it. Notable names were Yah, Eloah, and Tetragrammaton. Then the notable 42-letter name, which was really composed of others, Eiei, Asher, Eiei, I am that I am, Yah, Yahuwah, Al, Elohim, Yehovah, Sabayoth, al and Adonai. Another application of the letter to talismans is the 72 names of God known as the Shema or Separated Name. There are different views about the origins of this name. Some believe it was composed in medieval Europe, while others claim it had existed from ancient times. It was certainly well known to the authors of the Beher and the Zohar, and was used extensively by Abu Lafir and his school in the latter half of the thirteenth century. If it was known in ancient times, the method of composing and using it was not common knowledge even among Kabbalists until Abu Lafir made it available. The use of the Shemamaforesh evolved in the quiet sanctuaries of the schools as a meditative aid to those engaged in the spiritual life where it had long been understood that through using divine names in meditation, one could utilize powerful spiritual forces to assist spiritual development. In this context, they were also understood to be the names of the angels of Jacob's ladder, which reached from earth to heaven. In later medieval times, the use of the Shem became central to the emerging interest in all things magical, and some or all of the 72 names were often used in magical rituals and or placed on medals or rolls of parchment to form talismans. However, it should be noted that it is not necessary to utter the name aloud in complex rituals to achieve spiritual benefits from them. There is a great, if not a greater possibility of being drawn closer to the essence of the name through an attentive application of consciousness in contemplation. The composition of the name is derived from verses 19, 20 and 21 of the 14th chapter of Exodus. Each of these verses contains 72 letters. The 72 names are formed by first writing down the letters of verse 19 in correct order, then under them... Writing the letters of the first 20 in reverse order, and finally, writing down the letters of verse 21 under verse 20 in correct order. Reading them from the top down, we obtain 72 three letter names, to each of which are appended the letters Al or Ya to form the 72 names of the Shema Maforash. In the late 18th century, the French scholar, Court de Gevelin, declared that the 22 trumps of the tarot were mystical emblems derived from the esoteric schools of ancient Egypt. In the first volume of his book, Le Monde Primitive, published in 1781, he stated his belief that the 22 trump cards of the tarot were the vestige of an ancient Egyptian book of wisdom called the Book of Thoth. Unfortunately, the truth is that as yet the origin of these cards is still unknown. That they existed in the early 15th century is a matter of fact, but prior to this little can be said about them with any degree of certainty. It is generally accepted that the oldest surviving tarot cards are those known as the Bembo deck, so called because it is thought that they were painted by Bonifacio Bembo of Cremona, of the visconti Savozza family of Milan sometime during the late 1440s. Whether or not they were created as vehicles of mystical knowledge is also unknown. What is also a matter of fact is that over the last two centuries a great deal of speculation has emerged concerning the origin and purpose of the tarot. The earliest specific reference from an esoteric point of view is that of de gebelin Other scholars believe that the Tarot was brought into Europe by returning crusaders, or at least was derived from Saracen sources. Paul Foster Case put forward a theory in his book The Tarot, A Key to the Wisdom of the Ages, that about the year 1200, wise men from many parts of the world converged upon the Moroccan city of Fez to discuss the ancient wisdom. In order to overcome the problems of language, they prepared a pictorial book, which eventually became the emblematic pages of the tarot. Giovanni Corvaluzzo, a 15th century chronicler, claimed in his History of Viterbo that the tarot cards were brought into Viterbo from the country of the Saracens in 1379. One particularly interesting association is that of the Sufi tradition. F. L. Cartwright, in his book The Mystic Rose from the Garden of the King, gives an account of a mystical treatise that had many correspondences with the tarot as we know it today. This treatise, incidentally, is thought to predate the Crusades by several centuries. Many other theories exist concerning the origin of the tarot. Some maintain that Indian chess lies at the root of the tarot, while others favour Chinese origins. The fact is, there is no real evidence to support any of these theories. Nevertheless, from the time of Court de Gevelin, the 22 trumps of the tarot have been attributed with bearing a secret mystical teaching, and from the time of Alephus Levi, this mystical teaching has been connected with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This connection is certainly evident in the tarot trumps' designs created in the mid-19th century by Elephas Levi, and subsequently in those created by members of the Emetic Order of the Golden Dawn and its various offshoots, which undoubtedly contain an exclusive esoteric teaching. One such initiate reported to me that the most important purpose of the tarot is the revelation of the secret doctrine, a secret doctrine that was exclusive to the initiates of those orders. A 19th century example of a prototype for an English tarot deck that was never published and which predated any published tarot deck in Britain, consisted simply of letters of the Hebrew alphabet with brief explanations appended for each of the four worlds. The explanations were cryptic references to the more arcane aspects of the sefer Zera, and suggested a profound understanding of the principles of a system of spiritual development little known outside of the parameters of the tradition. The same cannot be said with any certainty of the multitude of cards that bear the name Tarot that have been published from the mid-20th century to the present day. It is probably true to say that none of the cards that have ever been published and made available to the general public embody anything beyond the vague use of occult symbols and images. However, It should be noted that iconic images have been used continually throughout history for the edification of society and societies alike. One series that comes to mind are the Stations of the Cross, which have been used by the Roman Catholic Church as aids in meditation, much in the same way as a mandala or tanka may be used in Buddhism. Like all symbols, their capacity to provide inspiration is almost infinite another example and probably more pertinent to our subject is the masonic tracing boards there are in fact several each designed as a focal point of instruction for one of the three degrees of craft freemasonry their symbolism embodies different levels of teaching for the appreciation of different levels of understanding it is in the use of such devices that we may find the basis of the secret tradition embedded in 18th and 19th century tarot. The illustration of the second degree tracing board is a pictorial representation of some of the core doctrines of Freemasonry. It presents to the candidate an illustration of the interior of a three-storey building. The candidate is asked to consider the image as a representation of the lodge, and of the work undertaken therein. At the entrance stands two pillars, Yakin and Boaz. They are each surmounted by a globe, one of which is a terrestrial globe, the other a celestial globe, suggesting two worlds of experience and endeavour. Within is a curved flight of stairs that leads to the second floor. At the foot of the stairs stands a doorman or guardian, At the top of the stairs is another doorway that leads into another chamber, apparently illuminated by a great light. A doorman or guardian also attends this doorway. The whole image represents a movement away from the outer world of the senses to the inner kingdom of the soul. The candidate must enter the interior world through the pillars of Yakin and Boaz, suggesting that the inner reality of the soul may only be comprehended through the harmonious integration of the principles they represent. This is not an easy undertaking. In Kabbalistic terms, these principles are to be understood in terms of the masculine and feminine potencies of the supernals, operating at all levels of creation. As the candidate progresses in the work, his understanding of these potencies and his ability to work with them evolves as does his responsibility for his actions. To assist in this development, the candidate is instructed to apply the faculty of reason to the cultivation of worthy thoughts, words and deeds, for spiritual progress is dependent upon it. Thus the guardian at the foot of the stairs may be said to represent that part of the mind that watches over our thoughts, words and actions in this world that they may never offend God, society or conscience. The guardian, then, corresponds with the application of will and reason operating in accordance with the rule of life, rather than reacting to the appetites and demands of the animal nature. The curved stairway, otherwise known as the winding stair, embodies steps or stages of the candidate's progress. In some of the primitive tracing boards, there are only seven steps, reflecting the cosmic dimensions of this work. In others, such as this one, there are 15. Seven relate to the seven liberal arts and sciences that constitute the basic platform of the candidate's education. They also relate to the seven officers of the lodge, who embody certain qualities of consciousness that the candidate will in due course develop. Five refer to the five classical orders of architecture and three correspond to the three archetypal characters that play a central role in the allegorical mythology of Freemasonry and to the three degrees of Freemasonry that the candidate will pass through to achieve the status of Master Mason. Having ascended this staircase, the candidate may then enter the middle chamber where tradition informs us the fellow craftsmen working upon the greater temple of King Solomon, receive their wages. This notion is extremely suggestive, alluding in part to the laws of causality that affect all living things and thus to the importance of living a wholesome life, according to the law, both spiritual and temporal. The guardian, who stands at the entrance of the middle chamber, represents the will of the candidate, no longer under the influence of the mundane world and the animal nature, but rooted in self-knowledge and understanding. The symbolism that has consciously been embedded in this image is almost inexhaustible, and it is well worth taking the time to explore it. However, we must now draw this talk to a close to be continued in Part 7. Thank you.